If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Sean Duffy, the co-founder and CEO of Amada Health a virtual first care provider that blends clinical protocols with behavior science to help people with chronic conditions achieve long-term improvements in their health. Sean started Omada Health in 2011 after holding positions at both Google and IDEO. The company is scaled to serve over 1,700 customers and over 700,000 all-time members. Omada has been named one of the most innovative companies by Fast Company, and Sean was included on the Forbes Under 40 list. Sean is a former MD, MBA candidate at Harvard and holds a BS in neuroscience from Columbia University. And with that great intro, let's welcome Sean. Welcome, Sean. I'm so happy to have you here today. First of all, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to talk about um, the future of healthcare and everything that you've done. But let's just start from the basics. What is Omada Health in your own words? Sure. Yeah. Well, Alexa, thank you for uh, having me on. So Omada Health, we're aiming to support our members in that between visit care. Uh, which is one of the areas where current healthcare just does not serve uh, individuals. And so we specialize in diseases that really are optimized for that support. So that's prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal care. Where was the aha moment? What, what was the inspiration from? And then what that first year look like? Sure. So uh, I founded Omada well in medical school and was actually on a summer internship uh, out at IDEO. And the real aha was something was in the water with digital health. Uh, you know, it was very, very early, um, but it was kind of the era where wearables were starting to come on the scene. And there was this belief that, you know what, design and technology could matter in healthcare, but the question was how. Uh, so the goal of Amato was to think through, well, how, how could you build a more evidence-based digital health company that could, you know, really earn the trust of the actual healthcare system? And so the aha was thinking, well, well, where, where are the care areas where digital's not just incrementally better, but transformationally better. Uh, and so we sat in homes of people that had prediabetes and diabetes. And you talk to someone from 10 minutes and you realize that uh, across the US, there's just so many millions of people falling into uh, cracks and that are not getting the support that they need uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. What would it look like if I'm now one of the 700,000 and growing, I'm sure by the, the minute, members working um, with you to manage diabetes, for example? Well, let's start with kind of the current care experience for the vast majority of people with diabetes. And that's maybe a 15 minute visit with your PCP every six months. You know, it's one of the many, many things that you discuss, you know, in large part, the disease is asymptomatic. So just bit by bit, your body and your fragile tissues just start to rust. Uh, and, you know, the outcomes and paths are very, very clear at what happens. So contrast that with Omada, where you sign up. Step one, we get you all the needed devices uh, to monitor your health from afar. So we get you a cellular connected scale, a blood pressure cuff, a glucometer, a continuous glucose meter, which is a little patch you put on your arm that reads off the sugar data in real time if needed. And once you've got your devices, we set you with a care team. And that includes a health coach, that includes a, a diabetes educator. And these are people that in combination with our technology, our curriculum, you know, our goal setting, 
really help A, learn about you and ask you what your goals are uh, as a person, and then B, help set up a care plan that we can support iteration against. So, uh, you know, it's really about those micro adjustments on a quick period of time to help support someone's sugar control. And that's why this every six month visit really doesn't work. So we try to be the, basically the exact opposite of that. Which is lots and lots and lots of little visits. Lots, lots and lots. Of, <laughs> I love that. Yes. Spread <laughs> yeah. out those visits. Exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that you guys have done um, really incredibly was really facilitating communication. You as the architect of setting this all up, how did you think about communication? How did you think about innovating that communication? You know, it's so funny that, uh, you know, step one, it sounds so simple, but healthcare is really stuck in this synchronous world where it kind of stems from the billing models, the concept of a visit, but, you know, in large part, healthcare system pays for synchronous time. Um, and that's not, that's, that's useful and that's helpful in moments and even with Omada. Yet step one is looking at, you know, what our members want. And in large part for that sort of longitudinal care, they want to message back and forth, which is great because you can create kind of an amazing emotional connection and then, you know, follow up with messages and have dialogue and use kind of synchronous communication as needed. And so it's really about, you know, allowing our care teams to, you know, help support our members and, and, and be present for them, uh, you know, support them, you know, against their goals and, and communication and, and a feeling kind of a humanness and accountability is mission critical against that. You've said before that the most useful data in healthcare is the in-between data. Talk a little bit more about your your own vision for Amada coming going forward and how you really think about what that in-between data can do. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, you know, people always ask, well, oh my gosh, interoperability really comes to the fold here. Is that going to change the game for members? And, and the answer will be helpful, but it's incrementally helpful because it, it just shows the way you're utilizing the healthcare system on a very kind of long time horizon basis. It's like, well, great, you know, in this period of time, you got that procedure kind of X, Y, or Z, but, you know, behavior change and care support really happens at the micro level. So if we can see that someone spent five minutes completing a lesson this time when their previous, you know, lesson was 15 minutes, that's a signal. Maybe they're less engaged. If we see that someone, you know, was weighing in three times a week and now that's dropped to one, you know, that's a signal that we can use to help uh, support our care teams in outreach. And those small things and the small behaviors that you pick up and how people are using the care that you're providing, uh, you know, really allow you to tune, tailor, and personalize and get to better outcomes. Uh, so it's really kind of that, the, the little data that tends to have the, you know, the biggest uh, outcome and how you can make a great care experience. How did the pandemic, especially, what did it specifically change for you as CEO? And what, did, what went through your head in those early days of, oh my God, this is now possible? What happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a huge, a huge accelerant. I mean, as you kind of shared, I mean, we were, we had kind of a digital first vision for a very, very long time. But what happened in the pandemic is you had, you know, 300 million Americans all at once had to ask themselves, well, how, how do I get care from afar? I don't want to show up. And then they're asking their employers, and their employers asking their health plans. And all of a sudden it kind of triggered a lot of operational changes, building model changes, you know, that would have been, you know, in another world, probably three years in the making over the span of weeks. And people started getting care from afar and they started messaging, they started calling their clinicians, uh, you know, getting on Zooms and it, it kind of a set of expectation that though we still have to fill out, you know, figure out the balance point between in-person and virtual, virtual is here to stay. And it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, you know, in the early days of Omada, I'd go to these payers and share, look, Omada is a covered entity. You know, think of us just like, you know, the Mayo Clinic. We want to contract as a provider. And they'd say, well, that's great. Where are your clinics? And, you know, you'd have to kind of explain, well, you can deliver care without being in person. And, you know, you could maybe get them there, but that doesn't happen anymore. That conversation, I haven't had that conversation in years, which is a wonderful thing. COVID accelerated so much and really showed us what was possible. And we had to push the boundaries in a very quick period of time on care and healthcare. 
What do you think is going to stick? And what do you think or, or what are you already seeing is going back into in-person? And how do you think about those lines? It'll uh, no, undoubtedly be the balance. I actually think that the intersection is where you know so much innovation is going to happen because you've got to have in-person care. I mean, Omada is not going to be able to remove a mole or we're not doing hip surgery anytime soon. Um, you know, but the carriers that we've selected you know, per the TIP are just so tailor-made for digital support. So the question becomes is how do we do what we do within the context of the care that someone's getting? And, you know, as kind of a thought starter for fun, you know, over the holidays, I went through like all 9,000 CAT1 CPT codes, which is kind of the library of codes that shows clinical procedures codified by the AMA and asked myself, well, could you feasibly do this virtually? And then looked at kind of care throughput pre-pandemic and roughly about 30% of care throughput determined could be virtual. So that's the question. Well, how do you innovate at the intersection? And, and that I think is going to be the critical piece of the future. And that's really exciting where it's not, it's um, partnership with in-person care, uh, you know, really unpacking what should be done in what setting, and then kind of almost come up with a triage where if someone has a clinical need, you start from afar. Okay. Can you accomplish it? Great. Do it. If not, can you get it in the home or a more convenient setting, you know, and then you go to classic brick and mortar and, and, and that's going to create just such a significantly different care environment with far more convenience and access. For everybody listening, give us a moment of what our healthcare is going to look like in a decade and like all of the fabulousness that we get to look forward to. Well, yeah, for sure. So, so what there, there's a couple of things that need to happen to create kind of the promise center here. The, the first is exiting the pandemic. Um, we need the market to understand that virtual care is not just setting up a, a Zoom, you know, with a clinician, that it's about using a whole host of tools, technologies, you know, devices, people, different communication channels, uh, you know, in an organized way to deliver better outcomes. Because simply zooming with your doctor doesn't a add any economic efficiency to healthcare. You know, it does add some convenience, but it's not the panacea. It's kind of a nice to have. It's a tool, uh, and at times you will want to uh, either talk to your clinician by phone or by video. So that's kind of step one. If the market starts to the support that, especially with self-insured employers, if they get that then they will help create kind of pressure and billing models and they'll they'll be customers because they're self-insured of solutions that fit in that rubric, which bit by bit, you know, pushes on the payers, it pushes on the providers and creates kind of a more innovative world. Now, and tomorrow's care environment is there's many places you can enter based on need with member and patient permission, you know, data sharing and collaboration against the other care that you're getting. And you get support through calls, through videos, through messaging, you get insights through data, you have kind of tools delivered to you. And it just becomes really part of the ether and part of your everyday. I mean, right now, when you think of healthcare, you think of it as, well, you know, maybe I'll go into X setting and visit my primary care doc for a physical like once a year. Or, that's how most people conceive of healthcare. That's, that's the opposite mindset and opposite orientation to optimize health. You really need to think of it as part of your, your everyday, but the toolkit and reimbursement's not quite there, but it's coming. Give us a sense of, of the sort of specific categories that you're most excited about well, yeah, I mean, the, the you know, from a hardware side, um, uh, you know, it's already pretty amazing what, what you can do. I mean, I'll use the continuous glucose monitors, you know, as an example. Little, there's many of these out there. Um, we preferentially partner with a company called, you know, Abbott that makes a, um, a device called the Freestyle Libre. And you, you just put a little patch on your arm. You don't even feel it when you apply it. And it shows you kind of real-time sugar data. In yesterday's world, I, you know, you've got to prick your finger and like, you know, use a lancet and then you're getting just kind of a snapshot at that point in time. And it might be high or low because you took it 10 minutes past eating versus 15 minutes past eating. And so uh, you just don't get the data needed to really optimize care and support. Um, so that's an example where you have all these incredible devices. Who knows? Maybe someone will create light-based glucose sensing and 
you name it, but um, uh, the, the data streams from these can really power care teams to pick up on insights and bring them back to members at a, a quickened pace. What are the next big investments that you're making for Amada Health? There's a R&D agenda, uh, you know, which really consists of uh, really tight, integrated experience within kind of the care areas we operate. And that's kind of a path we've been on, but we're fueling it even more. And the goal is to make it such that, you know, if you uh, need support and physical therapy for your low back pain, and you also, uh, you know, have diabetes and hypertension, um, we're taking all of those clinical needs uh, in an integrated way into consideration with our whole care team. So that's kind of an exciting chapter. We plan to differentiate there. You know, the second is what I mentioned about integration with in-person care, really approaching the care landscape with humility and recognizing that digital is amazing, but not for everything. And what I don't want to do is end up a decade later where we've created a more fragmented care experience because we're not operating with an ethic of coordination, um, with an ethic of really collaboration. So really, we think those two things will be hugely differentiating, you know, for Amada. And, and those are the things that, uh, you know, I, I'm paying a special uh, focus on right now. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on For Starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. You've described yourself as a huge computer nerd growing up. Where do you think that passion for technology came from as a child? Uh, you know, I mean, probably from my daddy was an engineer, you know, worked at uh, Hewlett Packard, like ma making oscilloscopes, which is like about as nerdy of a project that you can be on an engineering computer because you're making the tool for other engineers. Uh, and, you know, I just remember showing up to HP and being amazed that they had this kind of bin of resistors and you could just pull out kind of any ones that you want and like, you know, hack and mess around. So I think that that, that was kind of the, you know, an element of that. And then um, technology is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's so amazing. You look at GDP growth, you look at kind of innovation, quality of life, like all the major strides that society has made. Uh, you know, science and technology has really powered it. So, uh, uh, you know, that's always been how I view the world and what I get excited about. Name something that you think your parents did when you were younger that helped lead you to this path. Uh, I would say, especially with how my mom approached the world, literally anything was possible. You know, kind of the uh, improv expression, expression, yes and. Yes. You, you know, it's yes like, and. <laughs> yes and. It's like literally, like if I wanted, like, mom, what if we built a campsite in our basement? It's like, let's do it. And then all of a sudden, like we're setting up tents, we're like decorating it, we're like going out to find like an owl to like hang in the corner. And, and it just created this like magical world. And there's so many versions of that throughout my childhood where literally anything was possible. And and I honestly, it's weird. It's like so seared into my psychology. Like I this is kind of a good and a bad thing, but it's like imagine that something can happen and just like not stop until it actually happens. And I think, you know, I think that's really important that, you know, in entrepreneurship, you have to have kind of a naive belief that starting from zero, you could build something that has a transformational impact on society and you just have to like continue believing and grit it out. And so I think that the, uh, you know, I kind of felt that all throughout my childhood, which was a real blessing in retrospect. You took a year off from medical school and eventually left all together, which as we shared, we're both Harvard dropouts. When you went to go do that, 
Tell us a little bit about that bet you had to make on yourself. What did that feel like? For a little context, so I um, studied neuroscience in Android. I graduated in 2006, which is like the coolest time in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's always cool, but that was right when like, you know, you no longer had to click on the corners of MapQuest and you could like drag the maps. It's just like, so at, at night I was reading Slashdot, you know, yesterday's Hacker News <laughs> and um, not studying like molecule chirality. So ended up thinking I'd have to pick tech or healthcare, worked at Google for a while, went off to the MD, MBA at Harvard. And then in that first summer, they asked that you take an internship that blends business and medicine. And I just known from my time in the Valley, some people at IDEOS who came out there and that's when, you know, got inspired by the idea behind Omada. So kind of tapered out of med school. I asked the dean for a year off. They're like, no problem. You know, I was kind of working on the idea, raised a little bit of money, asked the dean for another year off. Like, no problem. Kind of went back for the third and the bartender's cutting you dry. So I just, That happened I, to me too. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, I mean, it sounds like, oh, Sean, you're like so bold and brave to drop out of like med school. I'm like, God, it just phased out, to be honest. I knew nothing about the business of healthcare. I mean, I was super, I mean, I was green generally. Like I never hired anybody. I didn't know what a VC was. You know, I read like the 10 day MBA. I read a book called, uh, you know, how to read a financial statement. I read the entrepreneur's guide to business law and all Paul Graham's posts. I was like, buckle up. Um, but so, so because I was completely naive uh, to how healthcare operated, it just felt like, well, shoot, if I could through design technology and people create outcomes for someone in an area where outcomes are hard to get, somebody will pay. Right. <laughs> so uh, and, and I mean, looking back, my gosh, the medical first that we had to accomplish, uh, you know, to modern, we had to like, you know, we were the first company that was really dedicated to peer review research. I mean, we, we brought our trials to the American Medical Association and got the first ever digital specific CPT code issued, you know, in U.S. healthcare. We're the first to pioneer what it means to contract as a proper HIPAA regulated covered entity, like the first to get NCQA accreditation, like all of these things. Uh, you know, had not been done in a digital setting before and ended up being required, but was very naive to the fact that we'd have to go down those paths from the beginning. But I'm kind of glad that I, I didn't know uh, what I didn't know. You've said you've never been happier as a human than this period of building Omada. Help us understand that. And, that, and again, I feel the exact same way as I sit here and build inspired. Why? Why do you think that is? I just like love creation. I love business. Uh, you know, I love products and, and I love, I think maybe most of all, it's like, I just love to learn. And, you know, I didn't do any of the business school at Harvard, um, but this has been the best, most fascinating experience. It feels just like such a gift and almost feels like it just happened by accident. And to have really no experience as a, a leader in the CEO, having never hired anybody and to go from, you know, a three person office to, you know, a scaled organization with 700 people and thousands of customers supporting over 700,000 members is a, a really neat experience. Just watching a business evolve and what it needs from me as a CEO and just generally from like this infant stage to this toddler stage, to this adolescent stage, you know, to this high school stage is, uh, is really um, just so fun, so fun. And it's really hard. There is never a straight line to success. I've never seen it with my friends that are CEOs at least. There's enormous amount of suffering, but most most things that are worth doing are are like that, and and business building is absolutely worth doing. What are your tips for staying stable and sane through those times? What are the things that you can pay it forward to? And I will say th this is one of my favorite questions because actually this is where you really learn how people manage through the grit. So what are yours? Well, yeah, I mean it's funny. There's like there's this general aspect of like you know if you found a company you have to just grow zen with the idea that you'll be at death's door many times and kind of approach it almost like abstractly, like objectively, like pull yourself out of yourself, kind of appreciate that just 
amazing aspect of entrepreneurship and you know the the ecosystem. And if you're comfortable with that, then you can think critically and objectively on how to solve the problem such that you you make it through. So that's kind of a piece. And it's usually never as bad as it seems, never as good as it seems. The answer is generally in the middle. So you, you, know, you have to kind of manage your psychology through that. But fundamentally, I actually think that the most important thing that you should self-reflect on if you're building a business is how much do you love the problem? Because if you find a problem that you love enough and care enough to solve it, two things happen. One, you will be able to muster the determination required and the grit required to get the job done because you care about solving it so much that you're just like, well, no, well, I'm not stopping. Like you can hit me in the face a thousand times and you just know that you'll run this idea to the ground. It'll either be hugely successful or won't work, but like you will not give up. So make sure you really love that problem. Kind of that actually, I think is almost the most foundational thing. Tell us a little bit about your process when you're, you're hiring senior people and pay it forward to all of us. What have you learned? I have to do that a little bit less now because I think I know what great looks like across various functions. But in the early days, I'm like, I don't, I don't know what like a head of sit, what's great for a head of sales. I don't know what's great for a CFO. So if you talk to a number of folks that are at least described by others as excellent, not to recruit them, but just to beg them for 30 minutes to like unpack, not like what good looks like in the role, what excellence in the role looks like, you can start to suss that out in the interview process. So that's kind of step one. And then I think two things have been important, raw leadership and followership. And you can just ask, well, what, what does great leadership look like to you during the interview process? And you get so much color on that answer because, you know, inside an organization as it scales, you'll just see enormous variance amongst teams for how healthy they are, how productive they are, how fulfilled they are. And it almost always comes down to that leader. Uh, so great leadership really, really matters. There's the core competencies, those kind of our default, but the, the soft side is kind of great leadership. And then um, make sure that they can plan and put a plan together. So the last stage of our hiring process with execs is we'll call it the 100-day plan. It's like, all right, what's your first 100 days going to look like? You know, how are you going to approach the org? What are you going to be looking for? How are you going to hold yourself accountable and, and ask them to present it? Our best hires were always great at that. And that reflects in their actual planning and their teams. I want to quickly go to a quick fire round. I'm going to ask a question. Sure. First thing that comes to your mind, let us know. What gets you out of bed every day? Uh, I mean, I'd love to read the news in the morning, get some coffee, catch up on the world. If I can get it while lying in bed or, you know, before the kids wake me up, kind of that's nice. I just love that moment. I love that moment. What's your favorite interview question to really understand somebody? You know, I, I honestly think that, especially as we've scaled with execs, either that question, what makes you a great leader? What does great leadership look like to you? Or just a whole set of secondary questions against it, because you can leave that thread with a person being like, well, you know what? I'd work for them. Or you can leave that thread being like, I wouldn't work for them. Or like, I'd have apprehensions. And if you, if you fall in that second camp, it's not going to be the right hire. You can get so much color. And that tends to be harder, frankly, to pick up than core competencies in the role. What was your biggest pinch me moment to date at Omada? There's just been these moments where either at town halls, you know, looking out at like a sea of hundreds of Omadans, I'm like, wait, wait, this is like my company. You're like, so I'm sorry, I'm naming a couple, but we're like your friends from high school. They're like, come over to your office. And they know you from like your high school, Sean. And, and they assume they're like, oh, you have an office and a company. They walk in, they're like, what the heck? Like, this is real. <laughs> so, you know, the external ones are neat. You know, I'm just so proud of the organization. So the, the internal ones feel, funnily enough, a little bit like more, almost more emotional. If we fast forward two years, what do you think remote work is going to look like? And where do you stand on the spectrum? Yeah, so I, I think 
there will be a, a large amount of in-person time still, but I don't think it'll be calculated in the days per weeks. So it's almost like the setting and the frequency uh, you know, will change. So I think an ideal state is probably 10 to 20% of your time is in-person in some way with your colleagues, but huge flexibility in between because in-person is enormously important. I mean, you get emotional energy, you get culture, like you feel each other out. There's some things that you just can't do effectively remotely, like planning is very, very hard you know, on Zoom. Strategy is very, very hard on Zoom. So I think that the operating models of companies will in large part evolve to look at the kind of various teams, think about the frequency of in-person interaction required at the various teams. So accounting may be less than design, create kind of generalized scaffolding such that you know, the teams have the resources that they need to get together, and then make sure that you figure out kind of the right cross company mechanism. So I, I do think that, that one of the kind of artifacts of COVID is flexibility is more required. I mean, we're saying that in the still in the hiring pipeline. I mean, the um, best candidates at present don't want to be dragged back into the office five days a week unless there's kind of a real reason for it. Um, uh, you know, so I think that that's, that's how it'll evolve. What does it look like right now at Armada today? Uh, um, we're, we're remote first with the caveat that we say that in-person is hugely important. It was just similar to a care model. It's like you can do a lot from afar, but never forget in-person matters. Um, yeah. So it's like, you can't join Omada if you're not willing to get on a plane and like get together with your team, with the leaders, like travel needs to be, you know, a, a part of what you do when you're between visit and execution mode. Great. Run with it. Sean, what is a book that's changed your life? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. This is like the most boring one ever, but it's um of those books I listed, like the entrepreneur's guide to business law was so tactically helpful when I founded the company. I mean, I think it's like a law school textbook, that they use. <laughs> but I'm like... There's so many things that just feel so foreign when you're founding a business. And that one just covers so many of them. And it's like that kind of looking back in the first couple of years at Amada, the learnings from that one stood out as helping me power through some of the weirdest things that otherwise I probably would have fallen flat. Is there a quote you live by and what is it? I don't know that one should live by a quote. It's like life, life has more diversity and color and dynamism than like wedding yourself to one particular quote. So I've never been the sort that like, that is my driving sentence. <laughs> like you'll never see that on a wall behind me ever. That's awesome. I know I like that. Um, last question, uh, which I wish we had so much more time today. Other than health tech, what's one other category of innovation that you personally, as just someone who was such a builder and an innovator naturally, that you're most excited about outside of Omada? And so any other body of innovation that you just find really fascinating and you're excited about? I think fintech, and I, I mean, it's um, for, for two reasons, it's pretty similar to health. It's like an enormously complicated space. It's like people get totally lost. They fall into traps. But it's an area where I've helped people that like don't even realize like their interest rates on their credit card. And like, it's, you know, it's uh, not hot. So it's, there's so many parallels to healthcare that tech and design and kind of different supporting infrastructure can make a big difference on people's lives. It's really important, especially kind of given the current state of uh, you know wealth inequality and, and what, what we need for the country. You're speaking to my heart here, Sean. <laughs> so thank you. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, you can check out omadahealth.com and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Sean, keep up the incredible work. We're rooting for you and really we're blessed to have people like you out there trying to help make sure we all can be healthier and safer. So thank you. Thanks so much, Alexa. Enjoyed it. Enjoy it.